Hi, and welcome back to Coffee House Comparisons. Last week, we gave an overview of the legal system of Saudi Arabia, and this week we'll be taking a more in-depth look at criminal law within that system. I'm your host, Thessaly, and with me in discussion today are my fellow law enthusiasts, Kylie. Hi. And Amberlin. Hi. One of the main purposes of this podcast is to not only learn about the legal systems of other countries, but to do critical analyses of those systems in comparison with ours in the United States. Criminal law in the United States has been a hot-button topic among politicians, academia, and the public at large for years now. Every day new statements are made, headlines are printed, books published, criticisms and debate run rampant. Common among these debates are complaints of excessive force, racial profiling, overcrowded prisons, unjust sentencing laws, and the criminalization or decriminalization of illegal drugs, to name just a few. The media circus surrounding criminal justice reforms in the United States could lead a person or a society to believe that criminal law within the United States is harsh and unfair in a unique or even catastrophic manner. But is this true? Regarding our criminal law system, is the United States a uniquely violent and unjust country? And are the times and conditions that we live in uniquely uncertain and dangerous? My hope today is that through a comparison of the criminal law system in the United States with that of Saudi Arabia, I may be able to shed some light on such complex questions. But before we dig any deeper into these complexities, I want to scale back a bit and discuss the concept of Sharia again. It's impossible to properly study or comprehend the criminal law system of Saudi Arabia without likewise studying and comprehending Sharia. For those of you who remember from episode one, Sharia law is the Islamic code of law derived entirely from the Quran and the Hadith. These holy texts, like all holy texts, were written many hundreds of years ago, and so they, and the codes of Sharia law that they have inspired, set a great deal of restrictions on personal freedoms. Religious and ethnic minorities, women and gay people, were all greatly oppressed in those times, and this shows through the pages of the text, and likewise through the modern-day interpretation of Sharia law. Governing bodies, written codes of law, and police officers to enforce those laws were not yet in existence at the time of the Quran's inscription. Justice was dealt by kings and vigilantes, and so a great deal of emphasis on violence and revenge also shows through the pages of the Quran, and again through its modern-day interpretation within Sharia. Within the criminal law system of Saudi Arabia, can be found zealotry, extremism, mysticism, vengeance, brutality, bigotry, and it is all due to this basis of Sharia. Let's take a closer look. So what exactly is criminal law? Upon a cursory Google search, criminal law can be defined as a system of law concerned with the punishment of those who commit crimes. Sounds simple enough, right? Well, in reality, it is anything but. For one thing, systems of criminal law can vary a great deal from country to country and from state to state. And even if you isolate a system of criminal law to one single geographic area, there can be many different categories and subcategories of criminal law within the same system. In Saudi Arabia, for instance, there are three main categories of criminal law, hudud, kitas, and tazir. The first of these categories, hudud, literally translates to borders slash boundaries and refers to the punishments that under Sharia law are specifically mandated by God vis-a-vis the Quran. So in the United States, that's like a very different concept. There's separation of church and state, meaning that the church stays out of the state's business and the state stays out of the church business. 
this concept isn't actually in the Constitution. It's just a common phrase that a lot of Americans know. But with that, though, there we are a country that says we have that separation, but it all isn't always the case. There are many incidents where religion plays a role ruling in the court. One of these is, is on the topic of abortion. A lot of religions are against the killing of any form of life, from conception to until birth. But there are other people who think that it should be the person's choice to choose what they want to do. All right, yeah, so broadly defined, then, hoodoo can be understood as crimes against God. Common hoodoo offenses are the consumption of alcohol, the exposure of a woman's skin, the public presence of a woman without a chaperone, a failure to observe the strictures of Ramadan, etc. However, the two main offenses against hoodoo in Saudi Arabia are uh, apostasy and something called zina, which refers to unlawful sexual intercourse. And it's worth noting here that Zina does not refer to sexual assault or rape, but rather to adultery, premarital sex, and homosexuality. Although rape and sexual assault are technically illegal under the system of criminal law in Saudi Arabia, the reality of the situation is that the consequences for a woman pressing charges are often far greater than those for the man that she is accusing. In fact, under the prescriptions of Zina, even rape or assault are often faulted to the woman who can be convicted and charged with adultery. Often, the punishment for a woman found guilty of Zina is an honor killing. What this means is that the woman's family will be given permission from the state to kill the woman in order to restore the family's honor. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, I see kind of a similar instance. Not the whole honor killing thing, but in the U.S. that, yes, rape and sexual assault are illegal, but um, we have a problem here is that it's really hard to get a conviction for rape or assault because um, people tend to blame the victim, the women in general. It's, oh, you shouldn't have been drinking, you shouldn't have been wearing that, you shouldn't have been leading him on. Um, which is, and the, what you brought up with the women getting harsher punishments for coming forward than this other man. Um, I can see that in the whole case with Brett Kavanaugh. Mm -hmm. um, she, what's her name? I'm totally blanking on her name. It's not going to come to us. We can move past yeah. it. Um, <laughs> but she came forward with this allegation of sexual assault. And since then, she's um, received numerous death threats and all sorts of that while he gets confirmed to the Supreme Court. And even when a man is found guilty, when you look at sentencing yeah. laws, I mean, there's still this huge disparity between, you know, I mean, it's it's obviously very different in Saudi Arabia. It's obviously, you know, quite harsh there, but there is that similarity. Um, so now we can turn to the second category of criminal law in Saudi Arabia, which is Kisas. Kisas literally translates to retaliation in kind. It can be likened to this eye-for-an-eye eye mentality of justice. Victims of Kisas crimes or their family members may demand blood money or the right to physical retaliation by the male next of kin. Crimes committed under Kisas include anything involving bodily harm, but namely assault and murder. Sharia law in Saudi Arabia treats Kisas crimes as civil disputes between individuals, not as an offense committed by an individual against the state. It's worth noting here that non-Muslims in Saudi Arabia have no legal recourse in any categories of criminal law, as they themselves are considered criminals under Sharia. Yeah, so that's um, because here in America, um, revenge is not any kind of legitimate means of justice. If you were to 
enact any form of uh, revenge you yourself was likely being persecuted for it. Uh, even capital punishment. So if somebody were to be sentenced for death to death, um, it's considered a preventative measure. So to make sure that nobody else dies because of this person, rather than you killed this person, so you have to die. Um, and it's interesting that you mentioned also that it's these uh, crimes are seen as between individuals because here in the U.S. it's like it's violent offenses seen as an offense against like, the social order. So like if I were to attack Amberlynn, sorry Amberlynn, wow, <laughs> um, it would be seen as me like, attacking how like our social structure attacking our social structure versus me going after Amberlynn specifically. Right. The state would prosecute. Yes. All right, so then the third category of criminal law in Saudi Arabia, tazir, it's a more generalized category. It refers to punishments for offenses at the discretion of the judge or the ruler of the state. If a citizen of Saudi Arabia commits a crime as set forth by the writings of the Quran or the Hadith, but there is no punishment set forth by those texts, then it's up to the overseeing judge to determine a sentence. Therefore, when it comes to tazir cases, judges enjoy wide leeway and are free to act with broad discretion. They're not required to base their judgments on precedent, and consequently, there's little consistency in sentencing, either between individuals or over time. So in the United States, there's the common law, which is basically that the law is derived from customs and judicial pre precedent. In this system, judges can interpret the law based on the situation. Then with that, the judges create precedents for other judges in their jurisdiction. This then leads to the concept of stare decisis, which is then in a previous ruling, if a judge ruled one way, later cases are to follow the earlier judges, what they did, basically. Mm -hmm. So there it is, Hudud, Kisos, and Tazir. These three concepts give us an idea as to sort of the bare bones of the criminal law system in Saudi Arabia. Now let's take a closer look at how they're acted out in terms of arrests, trials, convictions, and sentencing. As far as arrests go under the criminal law system in Saudi Arabia, they are often arbitrary and even violent, especially when the arrest in question is of an individual suspected of religious or political opposition to Sharia. Arrests in Saudi Arabia can vary from polite invitations to brutal seizures. Members of al-Mutawin, uh, Saudi Arabia's religious police, often carry out arrests without a warrant and with unwarranted violence. So in comparison to the U.S., um, our police are required to have a warrant before they can arrest somebody, but um, you do tend to see a wide range of violence used towards people, often based on the color of their skin. So if you're privileged enough to be white, then you're generally, the police tend to treat you with more respect and gentler than if you were, say, black, where they often um, are very concerned with appearing violent and thus giving the police a reason to potentially shoot them and kill them, which is the whole movement of like Black Lives Matter, trying to draw attention to this disparity between races. Mm -hmm. Yep, and then when it comes to the criminal trials in Saudi Arabia, the alleged offenders are often held in jail for weeks or even months before their trial dates. The right to a speedy trial, the right to bail, and the right of habeas corpus are not recognized in the criminal law system of Saudi Arabia. 
Yeah, so in the U.S., you do have the right to speedy trial, which means that within like 100 days of your arrest, you should be allowed to have um, your trial go forward. And in that time, you do also have the right to post bail, where, if applicable, a judge can send that right, depending on the details of your case. But that means that you can pay a certain amount of money and be released. And then when you come back for your trial, you can get that money back. And then in terms of the right of habeas corpus, that just generally means that you have the right to know why you're being arrested and what you're being charged with before um, going to trial. So Saudi Arabia employs the bench trial system, meaning that trials in Saudi Arabia are overseen by a presiding judge called a qadi rather than a jury. Saudi Arabia's first criminal procedural code was introduced in 2001. However, a report by the UN in 2008 observed that the judges or qadis in Saudi Arabia were either ignorant of this code or consciously choosing to ignore it. So in the United States, we have a slightly different system. Here, the defense has the option of how the trial is done. So they can either choose a jury or a bench trial. The jury trial is kind of self-explained. That is where there's a jury and then they and they decide the ruling for the bench trial there is no jury and then there's just a judge and they themselves decide the ruling the reason that some people choose a bench trial is because that they think that their case is somewhat complicated and they are worried that it will confuse the ju- jury and then people choose their jury trial because they think a jury is easier to talk to and they might not pay as close attention to the legal aspects and how the attorney instead of how they, the attorneys paint the pictures of the case. So at trials, the presiding copy hears complaints and cross-examines witnesses. A great deal of significance is assigned to the defendant's testimony. A notable exception to this rule is when it is a woman who is being tried for a crime. Often at criminal trials, women are forbidden from testifying, and even when they are allowed, their testimony is weighted at half that of a man's. For instance, if a woman accuses a man of sexual assault, his testimony immediately outweighs hers, doubles hers, and by default, she would be sentenced unless she could find four male friends or relatives to testify for her. Yeah, so the idea of like a significant, um, a big significance being assigned to the defendant's testimony, um, that's kind of similar to what we have here with like the whole concept of innocent until proven guilty. So unless the prosecution can prove that you are actually beyond a reasonable doubt guilty, then you're considered to be innocent. So, but in terms of testifying, for the most part here, um, a woman's testimony is generally seen to be like worth as much as a man's. Um, of course, there are unfortunately discrepancies in that here mostly with um, sexual assault and rape cases. But overall, there isn't that, oh, you're a woman, so your testimony is automatically worth less than that than that man's. Mm-hmm. And then when it comes to legal counsel at trial, defendants are technically allowed a lawyer, although not provided with one in Saudi Arabia. However, when moving past those technicalities and towards the actualities, defendants are typically discouraged from obtaining legal representation at criminal trials. A former Sharia lawyer told Amnesty International in 1997, in Saudi Arabia, there are no defense lawyers in court. Whenever I went to the court, I acted as an interpreter only for the accused. There are lawyers in Saudi Arabia, but they can't appear before the court. However, they can give written advice, but only to defendants, not in detention, that is in civil cases. In a booklet issued by the Saudi Arabian embassy, the rationale behind this view of lawyers was expressed as follows, quote, 
Lawyers are not an integral part of the system. One can bring a lawyer, but that is optional. We don't consider the presence of lawyers a prerequisite for the delivery of justice. The judge acts, in effect, as the defendant's lawyer. He challenges every piece of evidence presented by the prosecution, end quote. So in the United States, that's very different, where we are guaranteed legal representation at trial, whether they are able to afford one or the court gives them one, but that wasn't always the case, in the state courts at least. Before the 60s, the court did not have to provide legal representation. That was until one case, Gideon versus Wainwright. In this case, Gideon was arrested for breaking and entering, and when his trial came up, he did not have the money to afford a lawyer, so he asked for one, but the, the court didn't give him one, so therefore he lost his trial, and he went to jail then. And then while he was in jail, he wrote habeas corpus, saying that the court violated his constitutional rights to counsel, and then he brought it to the Florida Supreme Court, and they denied it, that they violated their, his rights. And then he brought it to the U.S. Supreme Court, and there they decided it was un unconstitutional that he wasn't given a lawyer. And then with that, from now on in the state courts at least, um, the courts have to provide the defendants with a lawyer. And then later on, it went to the federal courts that they have to provide a lawyer to. I think you got that backwards. It was federal was first. Federal was first? Yeah, federal was first. And then Gideon B. Rainwright came after that. Oh. All right. So then... When it comes to convictions at trial in Saudi Arabia, proof is required in one of three different ways. The first is an uncoerced confession. But again, although that is the technical legal procedure in Saudi Arabia, the reality of the situation is quite different. Extended pretrial detention is often used as a tactic to extract confessions at trial. During this period, detainees often have little or no information regarding the reason for arrest or the charges. During these pretrial detentions, interrogators inflict deception, coercion, abuse, and torture upon the accused. A member of the religious police in Saudi Arabia who gave a rare and anonymous report to Amnesty International said regarding the status of one prisoner who had been accused of murder, he suffered seven months of torture, including removal of fingernails and suspension in midair by steel poles through his knee and elbow joints. His eventual confession was signed by him with a red thumbprint only because six police officers physically manhandled his thumb to the paper. Yeah, so here in the U.S., it's quite different. Um, we have plenty of laws in place uh, that protect defendants against cruel and unusual punishment, um, pretrial detention, and coerced confessions, including uh, the exclusionary rule, which says that any evidence obtained illegally, any kind of coerced confession, is not admittable in court. And then anything that you get from um, a coerced confession or illegal evidence, anything that you come up with after, because of that information is also not admissible in court. So that's meant as a means to discourage that sort of behavior so that we have everybody following the laws that they're supposed to. Yeah. Right. And then the second way that defendants can be convicted in Saudi Arabia is through the use of testimony. Typically, the testimony of two Muslim men is all that is required. Once again, a woman's testimony is worth half that of a man's, and oftentimes when it comes to criminal trials, a woman's testimony is not allowed at all. Testimony by non-Muslims or minority Muslims, for example, Shia Muslims, is automatically discounted. If adequate testimony is received, sentencing may be immediately imposed. So in the, <laughs> so United States, that's kind of different, but then there's also 
It depends on the situation. Yeah. For the most part, if you're testifying um, in any regards, no matter who you are, um, it's expected that your testimony is treated equal to everybody and anybody else who's testifying. Everything should be equal, but yes. not always the case. At least we have it written into law. Yeah. yeah. It doesn't always work out for us. There you go. So the third way, then, in which a defendant can be convicted in Saudi Arabia is by way of affirmation or denial by oath. So religious oaths are taken incredibly seriously under the mandates of Sharia. A Muslim would never swear a religious oath if they didn't absolutely believe what they were saying. Um, so a refusal to swear an oath of innocence is interpreted as admission of guilt, and it results in automatic conviction. It's worth noting here that all of these three methods result in that kind of automatic conviction, and none of them require proof or evidence of any kind. While evidence is welcome at criminal trials in Saudi Arabia, it's not necessary. Yeah, so it's interesting that you mentioned that um, not swearing an oath of innocence um, means that you're guilty because we have like very opposite reaction in, here in the U.S. Because you have the right to remain silent even in trial. You don't have to testify to like avoid incriminating yourself. And the jury is specifically told by the judge that you can't draw any conclusions based on that. Uh, so if you choose not to testify, um, the jury can't interpret that and say, oh, well, you're guilty, obviously. Um, it also, in terms of evidence, it also calls upon the prosecution to um, prove beyond a reasonable doubt that the defendant is, in fact, guilty. So the jury has to be able to look at her evidence and everything provided and say, of course, this person is guilty. There's um, really no other way this crime could have happened. And if the prosecution can't do that, then um, the jury should find the defendant not guilty. Right. So, you know, once they've got that kind of conviction in one of those three ways, um, then we get to the stage of sentencing. Criminal sentencing in Saudi Arabia takes many different forms, all of them quite shocking to a Western audience. For instance, there are the retaliatory punishments, which we discussed when we analyzed PISAS. PISAS can give rise to state-sanctioned violence between individuals or the demand of blood money by a victim's family. Then there is hudud. Punishments under hudud are usually, if not always, brutally harsh. Repeated theft can be punishable by amputation of the right hand and aggravated theft by the cross-amputation of a hand and a foot. Homosexual acts are punishable by flogging, imprisonment, or death. Lashings are a common form of punishment and are often imposed for offenses against religion and public morality, such as drinking alcohol or neglecting fair and fasting obligations. In 2018, at least 150 people were executed in Saudi Arabia, at least half of whom were foreign nationals. The most common form of public execution in Saudi Arabia is beheading by sword, although more brutal forms of execution, such as stoning and crucifixion, are still state-sanctioned. There were no reports of stoning since 2007. However, stoning has occurred relatively recently. For example, between 1981 and 1992, there were four cases of execution by stoning reported in Saudi Arabia. And all of these inhumane punishments are carried out by state-funded executioners in public squares. In a rare interview with the BBC News, a man named Mohammed Saad al-Beshi, one of Saudi Arabia's most prolific executioners, commented, It doesn't matter to me. Two, four, ten. As long as I'm doing God's will, it doesn't matter how many people I execute. Regarding the status of women under the prescriptions of Kudud, al-Beshi had this to say, Despite the fact that I hate violence against women, when it comes to God's will, I have to carry it out. 
comments like these show that the influence of Islam in Sharia and likewise in Saudi Arabia is of integral importance when it comes to doling out punishment. So in the United States, the death penalty is only legal in 30 states. With the death penalty, there are many different ways. So there's the hanging, lethal injection, shooting, um, gas chamber, and electrocution. The hanging is only used in New Hampshire. Lethal injections in all 30 states. The shooting is only in Omaha and Utah. But they, Omaha will only use the shooting if they find lethal injection and, execu- and electrocution unconstitutional. Gas chamber, Arizona, Missouri, and Wyoming use it. And they also, if the lethal injection is found unconstitutional. And then electrocution is in Alabama, Arkansas, Florida, Kentucky, Oklahoma, South Carolina, Tennessee, and Virginia. With the death penalty, there are 41 capital offenses that are punishable by death, which include espionage, treason, and various types of murder. With the In Saudi Arabia, they are very public, which is very different than the United States. They're very they're less public. They're usually with very few witnesses, and they're not able to touch them or anything, and they're usually behind, like, a wall or some sort. So, there we have it. Arrests, trials, convictions, and sentences under Saudi Arabia's criminal law. So after discussing all that, and it was a lot, uh, what do you guys think? So does learning about the criminal law in Saudi Arabia sort of put into perspective at all the system that we have in America? Like, do you guys think we really have it as bad as all that? Yeah, so I think that it really does put in perspective the system in America, because obviously our system isn't perfect. Uh, we talked about a couple of things that we can definitely improve on, but compared to Saudi Arabia, it's... Uh, our, our system is definitely not as harsh. Yeah. It's not as harsh. That's the word. Yeah. Saudi Arabia just, there's, very it's either strict. this or this. If not, then right, you right. have, you have no leeway in like the punishment stuff. So. Yeah. And I think something important is that, you know, all these really hot button topics that we've been debating about in America the past five or 10 years or so, like, you know, racial profiling and, you know, we've got the Me Too movement, we've got Black Lives Matter. I think the point is people are allowed to speak up there. Like, we, we can have we a encourage We almost encourage yeah. to we can speak out. Yeah, exactly. I if our laws aren't always enacted, they at least exist. Like women have laws to protect them against predatory men. That's that doesn't exist in Saudi Arabia. Mm-hmm. You know, we're you know there are laws in place that say that all men are created equal. Even if it doesn't work out that way, we have precedent here. Oh yeah. So the system of criminal law in America, it's dynamic, multidimensional, fluid. In other words, the system of criminal law in America is constantly changing. This is the key difference between it and the system of criminal law in Saudi Arabia. Sharia is, by nature, static. Islam as a religion is not open to change. It is written in the Quran that the Quran is the literal word of God, not to be interpreted or changed in any way. Therefore, archaic verses regarding the violent treatment of criminals are perpetuated in Saudi Arabia's modern-day legal system. Religious dogma reigns and personal freedoms suffer. 
Despite complaints by Americans that our system of criminal justice is discriminatory, there are laws and policies in place to protect minorities, whereas in Saudi Arabia, there are laws specifically disenfranchising anyone who is not a Muslim man. Despite complaints here that the police use unnecessary force, we have legal recourse when it happens. We even have the power to affect policy change, such as requiring members of the police to wear body cams. Despite complaints that our prisons are overcrowded and underfunded, criminals in America have rights that they may utilize, such as the right to legal representation, the right to a speedy trial, and the right to bail. Despite complaints that sentencing in America is harsh and unfair, particularly the sentencing of drug crimes, judges must adhere to policy and precedent in their rulings, and capital punishment is reserved only for punishment of murderers, and even then, it is used more and more infrequently as the years go by. And despite complaints that American legal system disadvantages women, particularly women who have survived sexual assault, women in America have the right to testify at criminal trials, and their testimony is equally valid as the testimony of the man that they are accusing. Women in America do not have to fear being sentenced to adultery and fornication if they publicly admit that they were assaulted. Women in America do not have to fear being forced to marry their rapists or fear being killed by their family members in order to restore some vague sense of honor. So such listing of comparisons like that could go on and on for quite some time. But my point is that while the legal system in America is not perfect, and while there are aspects of it that we as a society should be continuously attempting to reform, the legal system in America is not uniquely harsh, violent, or unjust. In fact, on a global scale, the legal system of Saudi Arabia cannot even be said to be uniquely harsh, violent, or unjust. Unfortunately, human rights violations like the ones explicated earlier in this podcast exist in every country and are enacted far too often, either in countries where Sharia is practiced or in countries where it is not. Despite media hype that surrounds the system of criminal law in America, it's important not to lose this kind of global perspective. On the global scale, things in America look pretty good. Thanks for joining this week on Coffee House Comparisons. Tune in next week as Amberlin leads us in discussion of civil justice in Saudi Arabia and comparisons with the U.S.